this past week was my dad and Sammy road trip. Whenever my children turned 13, I don't even know exactly how this started, but when they turned 13 that summer, uh, the child and I will end up going on a road trip, more, than a, more like a visitation to see family that we hadn't seen in a long time. But either way, it's, it's fun. And this past week, Sammy and I went and we had a blast, went down to Memphis. My mom's down there and uh, went to the National Civil Rights Museum, my favorite museum in the country. I've been there like five times now, I think. Went to Beale Street, got some barbecue, uh, uh, saw the ducks at Peabody. Sammy and I had this competition. Every state we went to, we found basketball stuff. We had an international grand champion of the world pig competition. Competition. Actually, it's not done yet, but she's beaten me three states to two, so we'll see how that works out. We have yet to play Pennsylvania, but I'm confident uh, that I might be able to pull off there. Uh, but one of the things we did was the first stop was in Chicago. And let me show you a, a picture, first of all. Now, this is 1977. And this is my youth group. We were on our annual Thanksgiving Day hike. I'm in there somewhere. See if you can, you can find me. Let me point out a couple of things, though. This is my brother, Matt. Wearing my San Francisco 49ers jacket. My sister is all right there. Um, my pastor, this guy right there, Dan Norwood. Uh, well, we had a reunion of this group. Uh, back our first night of our dad and Sammy Roan trip in Chicago. These guys, came, a lot of these guys came. Other people from the group came. But again, this was a while back. And so I was amazed how much gray hair and, and pot bellies and wrinkles and those kind of things. I'm like the only one that hasn't changed out of the whole group. It's just a, it was amazing to me. Uh, but there were some people, even in this picture, who just came to know Christ. And there were people there who had just come to know Christ in, in high school, but whose faith had made it. And you know as well as I do, faith that, that, that is for the long haul. I mean, it's gone through some sort of, of turmoil. And I made me start asking the question, you know, I wonder why Kim's faith made it. She got nothing in her background that would support it or anything else, but, but I wonder why Phil's faith made it. And I started asking, well, how do you really bring somebody to the gospel? I remember trying to witness to those guys, you're getting it all messed up and it's all wrong. And, and, and you get done, you say, did you understand it? And I don't even understand at that point. And Kim's crying, yes, I understand it. You do? Are you serious? Maybe you should explain it to me. You know, but there she is still 30 years later, walking strong. And you go, how, how do you? What is the best method? Uh, I was trained in evangelism explosion. Any of y'all trained in evangelism explosion? You familiar with this? Trained in that, went door to door. Uh, it's kind of cold turkey. That's a scary thing. You're not, when they come, you try to engage them in a spiritual conversation. Did a lot of that. Um, bus ministries and big sportsman outreaches and uh, trained in open air evangelism. I don't think I've got the gift of evangelism, but I've always prayed for it. And I really thought I was going to be doing open air evangelism my whole, whole life. We were in the subways in Chicago, spent a lot of hours on the street corners trying to, to share. Um, a guy by the name of Kevin Roos. He was a non-Christian student at Brown University. He wrote a book several years ago, I don't know if you're familiar with this, called An Unlikely Disciple, A Sinner's Semester at America's Most Holy Institution. He went undercover and got accepted to Liberty University, Jerry Falwell School. During spring break, this non-Christian kid posing as a believer went on a spring summer, a spring mission trip to Daytona Beach to try to share faith. And he says that he was really trying to uh, figure out how evangelical Christians think. 
And it's interesting, in his writing about this, he's not mocking Christianity. He seems to even be fond of the friends he made at Liberty. But still on his way out of Daytona, he says, you know what? It was pretty much a bust. Their, their evangelical Christians' uh, evangelism strategy uh, is sorely lacking, was kind of the, the, the mindset. Now, this is a real important question for us. This is not just a, you know, a thing that we should just think about once in a while. Because our vision for the church, Jesus told us what we need to do. Before he left, last thing he said is, church, don't forget this. Go into all the world and make disciples. I'm giving you one thing to do. Don't muck it up. Do this. And so we need to figure out how the best way to do that. And, and then once they come to know Christ... How do they grow? I ask, what do you do? Really? What do you do? We got maybe some things people have told us, but maybe they didn't work for us. Maybe they'll work for someone. And what, what do you do? You ever ask that for yourself? How do I grow? Really? How do I grow? You know, the text before us this morning answers those two very critical questions. How do we grow? How do we re- re- reach the world? Most significant, most important, most effective evangelism strategy in the text before us this morning. Every one of us can do it regardless of your personality or gifting or anything else. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And as you're turning to Philippians chapter 2, and again, I hope you you bring your Bibles, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Let's stop at Romans 12. Okay, I've got it on the, the, the screen. But, but this is going to set up Philippians. And by the way, this morning, it's going to not be a whole lot of entertainment and juggling. You have to really think. So follow with me. A lot of moving parts. But, but at the end, hopefully the stuff will all come together and we'll go, ah, got it. Romans 12, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's a real important verse. Because Paul is telling us about this idea of growth. Now, sometimes when Paul's talking, he, he, and he uses this often, the imperative, which is the command. Stop doing this. Start doing this. You know, don't do this anymore. And begin doing this. And, and that, that's imperative, the command. Paul also speaks in passive voice, you know, like the boy was hit by the car, the the boy got sick with the flu. And the boy's still the subject, but he's acted upon. Well, here when he says, be transformed, Paul uses a passive imperative. So he's saying, real important, we'll see in a second. He's saying, that he's not saying, you transform yourself. You can't do that. But he's saying, allow yourself to be acted on, to be grown. Now, they've got to hang on that for a minute. Real important as we go to our text in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now this idea of growth in the church, traditionally there's been two voices that have been all over this. First voice is called quietism. Quietism says, you know what? Kids don't try to grow. You can't try to grow. It's just a supernatural, it's a natural thing. If the kid is in a healthy environment, he will grow. So as a Christian, quit trying 
You're massing stuff up. You don't grab the rose and try to, it will bloom in time. Just let go and let God. That's the slogan. Let go and let God. That's the quietism. Other side of the spectrum, another voice in this issue, pietism. And pietism says, what, are you crazy? Scripture says all over the place, you know, put this on and put this off and do this and don't do that and train yourself to be godly. And so a pietist person is rolling up the sleeves and there's all about blood, sweat and tears, baby. And, and their, their slogan is no pain, no gain spiritually. They're just, you know, they're the drill sergeants. They're going to make it happen. Well, I've tried both of those and you need to know, and both of them have lead you in different places, neither one of them positive. But I think we see both pieces here in the text in front of us. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Notice a couple things. Paul equates obedience. Doesn't he? Tell me if I'm wrong on this afterwards. He equates obedience with working out your salvation. Right? If you've always obeyed, continue to work out your obedience. But doesn't it sound a little bit like work out your salvation? I mean, am I saved by works? Notice the prepositions. Prepositions are real important. He doesn't say work for your salvation, right? doesn't say work through your salvation, work in your salvation. Your salvation's out there and you've got to work it in. If you really know Christ, your salvation's already in. Work it out is what he, he's saying. But you need to know it can be translated good. It leans this way, actually, to be translated work in order to bring about your salvation. And there have been all kinds of denominations that have jumped all over this verse saying, aha, it is a works thing. Big branches of Christendom that say, yes, salvation is works. Now, real important principle of hermeneutics, and that's this. Always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And scripture is very, very clear on this one. Uh, John 3.16, we've got different authors. John talks, the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes and continues to do good things and obeys and gets his act together, he shall not perish. No, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Whoever believes won't perish but have eternal life. Then Luke throws his voice in. And, and Luke is recording in Acts 16 the Philippian jailers' comments. Well, the Philippian jailer, after the earthquake, he he brought them out and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This would have been perfect. Paul should have said, well, listen, buddy, you better roll up your sleeves. It's going to be a chore. But no, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household, period. Believe. That's it. Well, Paul's going to add his voice to this thing in Romans 10, 9, and 10, where Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart that you believe and you're justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Next text. Paul goes on. Then We could go all over the place. The whole book of Romans deals with this issue. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works. Now, the same guy who wrote that was here writing this. So, Paul, what's you spiritually schizo or what? What is this thing by works? It's real important. Again, this is, this is, we're getting deeper in theology, but to understand what is salvation? What is salvation? Good question. We got to ask it because salvation in scripture, three, Pieces to salvation. 
You can't have one without the other. It's three pieces. First, first, and sometimes when they use the word salvation, it just means the whole ball of wax. Sometimes it just means each of these individual pieces. And so we've got to kind of look at the context and, and stay with me on this. First, first way we see salvation is justification. It's salvation from the penalty of sin. This key word here is forgiveness. This is what we think about when we think of salvation. I've got all these sins in my life that block me from God, Isaiah 59.2. Yeah, absolutely. I've got all these sins that, that I've got to have to pay for one day in hell. Yeah, that's, that's correct. And they, they make me an enmity. But see, Jesus, when he died, his blood covers over my sins. Therefore, when, I, when I trust him and I go to him in simple belief, all of my sins are washed away. It's, I am justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means. I'm forgiven. I am clean before God. It's a legal standing justification. Usually when we talk about salvation, this is what we mean. But there are other ways in which the word is used. For example, glorification. Paul uses it this way more than any other way. And and here's the deal with with, with glorification. Glorification is, is saved from the presence of sin. Because right now, I still have sin in my life. I don't want it to be there, but it still is. I live among people who have sin in their lives. I go to a church, that has sin in its life. I have a government, sin in its life, media, sin. Sins. I live in an environment of sin. So do you. That's what we, we all do. But one day, this is our hope, we will be transported to a place where there's no sin. No sin in me. No sin in anybody. I cannot imagine such an environment. That's glorification. And, and if you just look at these two terms, you can say, right? Some might say salvation. Yes, I have been saved. And yes, I am going to be saved. I haven't any glorification yet, but I will be. But then there's a third way. And that's sanctification. That's salvation from the power of sin. That's going, I mean, you've got justification over here, you've got glorification over here, you've got a lot of stuff going on in between. That's the sanctification part. And, and what it is, is it's, is it's okay, you've got a new heart, a new mind, you've got a new destination. Now you've got to live it out. Live it out. Work it out. You, you have to, to have your values and your decisions and every part of your life reflect who you now are. That's the sanctification piece. That's, and people will look at this sometime and go, ah, nah. I like the glorification part. See, I want to get to heaven one day. You know, I'm really not into transformation stuff. I like my life the way it is. I don't want to change anything. Thank you very much. But I do want to go to heaven one day, so I'm going to take that glorification piece. Others will say, yeah, yeah, I like the justification part. See, I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. I like this concept of being forgiven. That's pretty nice. And I want to start all over. And I like the justification. But you know what? Pretty much around the clock, nobody really cares for the sanctification piece. But you need to know. You can't pick and choose salvation like that. It's a package deal. Sanctification is not optional. You can't take the one and not take the other. It's all part of it. It's all part of it. So that sanctification deal is what he's talking about here. So one can say, justification, I've been saved. Glorification, I'm going to be saved. Sanctification, I am being saved. If you want to say it that way, I, I, I guess you, you can. So, so that's when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that just means this is serious. Don't take it haphazard. Well, it's not important. It's totally irrelevant. When I get to heaven, things will be okay. I'm going. I know that's all set. My ticket's been punched. Paul says, no, no, no. You've got to take this seriously. Because God does. Because God does. And so work it out. 
with fear and trembling. And if the text stopped there, we would go, I guess it's pietism. Got to work it out, man. Got to work, got to work, got to work. But the text doesn't stop there. Paul goes on. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He says, I want you to work, but you need to know it's really God who's at work in you. You say, well, I, I don't, is that the quietism? What, what are we talking, is it, is it me or is it God? And the answer, of course, is yes. Uh, but you know, this, this makes lots of, of sense. We see this all over scripture. The, is this the product of man or a product of God? Well, the answer is yes. Did you choose God or did he choose you? Well, the, uh, yes. Scripture, this is, this is normal. And in this salvation piece, this is so important. Because justification. Uh, did God do this? Did justification or did I do this? I didn't die for myself. God did it. Glorification. Will, will, will God do that or am I going to do it? Well, God does that. God gives me a new body and gives me heaven. Sanctification. Do I do that or does God? God does this. It's God who brings it about. It's pictures this. The picture is a man who's shoveling a ditch. And his two-year-old little boy is kind of in the ditch trying to help him shovel. And he's got his little, little shovel that he uses at the beach with sand. And he's making more of a mess than anything else. He's really not contributing. But he's giving it everything he's got. But dad is the one that brings this about. That's why, why Paul said in Philippians 1.6. And he, he's, he's already brought this up. He's going to bring it up again. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Keep in mind, God is not watching you work and every once in a while giving you a little energy to do it. He's not watching you work and every once in a while blocking stuff that might keep you from getting there. God is at work. Now, we, we forget the size of our God sometimes. So, so I want to take you on a, a journey halfway through our galaxy, okay? Halfway through it. Now, I'm told that there are about uh, 200 million stars in our galaxy. And that there are approximately 200 million galaxies in the universe, each one with hundreds of millions of stars. So we're just dealing with our galaxy, okay? And we want to get to the middle of our galaxy. And we're going to go there at 186,000 miles a second. Now, to understand how fast that is, if you were to shoot a bullet at 186,000 miles a second, it would circle the earth seven times in a second. And we're talking 669 million miles an hour. This is pretty fast. And so we, we take off at 669 million miles. We're not going to talk about what the G's do to your body at that point. Just forget that. Pretend like everything's fine. And we're going 669 miles, million miles an hour. We pass the, the moon, which is 220,000 miles away in just, just a couple seconds. It takes us 10 minutes to pass the sun. Okay, But then we keep going. 669 million miles an hour for one year. Five years. Ten years. A hundred years. A thousand years at 669 million miles an hour. 10,000 years. 15,000 years. We're not halfway across our galaxy yet. 50,000 years at 669 million miles an hour. And now we're reaching halfway through our galaxy. One of 200 million galaxies. We're, we're t- God did that. You don't think God can, can make us? He's got a plan for you and I. And, and he can do it. He's big enough. He has put you together. You know, you have 107 million cells in each eye that help you see. 
You've got about 60,000 miles of arteries through your body. You have 9,000 taste buds on your tongue. Over 220 bones put together make your skeletal system with over 600 muscles. God has put you together intricately and he's working. You can't control the stripes of the zebra. and that's what You, you, you can't change the leopard spots. No, no, you can't. But there's somebody working. He's not watching you work. He's working. And he can. And he can. God is doing that. God is changing. God is, is making us, helping us become and, and growing us. You know, the coolest thing about this is regardless of your IQ, regardless of where you've been, regardless of, of, of what you've done and how, how heavy your bags have been packed by others or how many scars you have or how many people you've hurt, regardless of your gifting or your personality or your abilities, you can know him as well as you want to. Because it's dependent on his power, not your power. You can be as holy as you desire. This is what he offers to each of us in sanctification. This is amazing, amazing stuff. We, we, we think that sanctification is trouble, is hard. Oh boy, I don't want to do this. Jesus said, Matthew 11, he said, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. He says, I, I'm, I'm gentle and, and easy. He says, my, my, my yoke is, is easy. My burden is light. Uh, sanctification is a joy. It, it's a privilege. He's saying, you're going to expend energy in life. I'm just telling you what you will. Either coping or dealing with stuff or image manipulation and guarding. And you're going to be expending energy. I'm just telling you, if you work out your salvation, it's going to be blossom. Because God will be working right alongside. And so he goes. And to the very first, I love this, very first, uh, or the primary, the hallmark form uh, of, of sanctification. One of the first things he wants to work on in us. Verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ. Now, do all things without grumbling. What is, what is grumbling? That's kind of what it is here because the word is onomopoeic. It's very... It is a negative reaction to something perceived as an obstacle or disappointing that arises out of a self-centered notion that I deserve better. You, you got that? Grumbling. It is a, a, a negative reaction to some perceived obstacle or, or uncomfortable thing uh, that arises out of a self-centered notion that I deserve better. Grumbling. Uh, Arguing. Arguing takes that emotion and it intellectualizes it. We're really good at this. We, we can come up with a case, yeah, I'm grumbling, and you need to, you would be grumbling too if you really understood what was going on. And we, we make this case for myself and why I'm okay to be feeling this way and thinking this way, and, and I've got a case here. And look what it says here do everything without grumbling or arguing. Can't I grumble or argue when things are really bad? And ah, it says do everything. Oh, man. What is that about? This is not denying reality. There are times we've got to confront. There are times we've got to put it on the table. But that's not the same thing as a spirit of rung right? You, you know what I'm talking about. And you need to know, too, that a spirit of, of grumbling, 
It's not. It's 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 not uh, compatible with holiness. A spirit of grumbling is a sign that God is not at work in that person. Sanctification, right? You with me? Sanctification is not necessarily how many verses you have memorized. I'm all for Bible memorization, but it's how many verses you're living out, right? Right? Are you with me on that one? And so, if in fact the 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 grumbling, because grumbling is not words, it's it's a disposition, it's a mindset. It's a, it's a thought that there is no such thing as a sovereign God. Oh, we'll say that there's a sovereign God, but, but our grumbling lives out the fact that we really don't believe that. Because if he was really sovereign, he would do it this way or that way or the other thing. He would shift it around. If you take this passage in context and you look at the passage just before it, by the way, Mike nailed the message on that last week. If you weren't here, you didn't hear it, get the CD. But passage right before it, Jesus is walking to the cross. And is he, I mean, that's a pretty bad thing to become the sin of the world, I think. That's not going to be real comfortable, the cross. And is Jesus grumbling on his way to the cross? Lousy church, I can't believe I've got to take care of them, deal with their, I'm always picking up everything. No! Matter of fact, Hebrews tells us that he uh, endured the shame with joy. Even in hard things, we recognize that God is sovereign. And, and to be complaining and bickering and arguing and... Uh, do all things without that. Any complaining is sin. So you need to know that, that uh, the opposite of this is gratitude. It's gratitude. It's thankfulness. It's a thankful spirit. It's a thankful heart. Gratitude, more gratitude does not come about because of more acquisitions, right? Gratitude is not something you can fake. Have you ever tried to fake gratitude? I've tried to fake gratitude. You get the present, and you're, you know you're supposed to like this thing. You're not even sure what it is, but you know you're supposed to like this thing, and you're going, ah, <laughs> thank you so much. I've always wanted one, one, one of, what is this again? And, and oh, yeah, no, oh, you're supposed to wear it. You know, 70s are coming back, I guess. So you're, 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 you're trying to be grateful, but you're not feeling it at all. You're not feeling it all. Listen, gratitude works, and three three things have got to be in place because you can't fake gratitude. It's it's a byproduct of walking with Him, of understanding biblically who He is and what He's about, of His presence and His goodness. Three things have to be in line. This is a secular study on this for gratitude to take place. One is is the goodness. We're three G's: goodness. In other words, you have to believe that that's what you were given is actually a good thing. And this is important because if we take our definition of what is good from our fallen world and media, we're going to not always be real, real, real thankful on this. But uh, Psalm 103, this is really cool. Because he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Now, who's David talking to here? He's talking to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Thank God. And all my, my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forgetters are not, uh, forgetters are grumblers. You got to know this. But people who remember God's blessings, God's gifting, are, are not grumblers. We start off with the fact that these gifts, uh, are good. Number th- second thing you got to know is you got to have realized that there is a giver. There's goodness to the things that I, I received. That there's a giver. It's not serendipitous. I wasn't in the right place at the right time. I just got good genes. I was in the right family. Uh, uh, you know, if 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 it's just I was lucky, then I'll feel lucky, but I won't feel thankful. 
James 1.17 lets us know that every, every, every not, not, not some, every gift, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. As I sit there, everything that I get, I'm recognizing that there was a giver here. Someone who thought of me and gave this good thing to me. Now, the third aspect of gratitude that you have to have in line is you have to realize the goodness of it, the, the, the giver, but then also that it's a gift. In other words, this is something I don't deserve. Someone hands me keys to a house and they say, hey, Mark, here, I want you to have this house. And it's, let's just say it's a nice house and they're giving me this house. It's like, wow, I'm going to be very, very grateful. But let's say that the, the banker is the one handing me the keys after I just borrowed a boatload of money from him for that house. You know what? Ah, I'm not as... He didn't help me out too much at all. I probably just made him a commission somewhere. You know, really, I'm entitled to this house. The more I think I'm entitled to, the less I will be grateful for. Right? If I'm thinking that my health is just something I'm entitled to. I mean, everyone's got good health. I should have good health too. I mean, it's just, I'm not going to be thankful for my good health. Matter of fact, when I don't have it, that's when the grumbling's going to start. But when I think my eyesight, my sense of smell, my, my hearing, when all the pieces of my body are operating the way they're supposed to be operating, I recognize that this is a gift from God. I don't deserve this. It's a gift from Him. Thankfulness. When I, when, I, when I see the different things that he has given me and recognize that, that I don't deserve it, a sense of entitlement destroys a spirit of, of thankfulness. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. It will destroy it. And this is more, this is more than just emotional impoverishment. This is a lack of gratefulness. Thankfulness is sin. Romans one twenty one. Although they knew God. They neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. And and choosing to not worship and thank God, not focusing on his benefits, what does it do for you? But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were dark, and it leads into deeper and more and more grumbling. Now, there's there's a couple of of, of Old Testament passages, just excellent example on this. Let me... uh, Rail through this real quick. In, in Exodus, just listen. I don't have these on this screen, but just listen to this. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. You know, uh, Swindoll says that a, the, go, the good old, what, that which makes the good old days the good old days is a bad memory, right? So these guys were, these guys were thinking, oh, this was great. We were in slavery. This was great. It wasn't so great. Um, but you brought us out here to this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather the bread. It was going to be the manna. Um, verse 6, so Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses said. You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Here's the principle here. God takes grumbling personally. 
Now, the people didn't think they were grumbling against God. They thought they were grumbling against Moses and the situation in the stinking desert and no food here and we don't have a sword and if anyone tries to attack us, we're all dead. They thought they were grumbling against the circumstance. God says, oh, no, 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 no. Grumbling, all grumbling is directed, maybe indirectly, but towards me. Because you don't believe I really am sovereign. You don't believe I really am God. God takes all grumbling personally. Therefore, God will also take it seriously. And uh, That was at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings. You think they would have learned stuff. At the very end of their wilderness wanderings, in Numbers 14, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt. Here we go down that, that song and dance again. Or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us into the land only to let us fall by the sword? They were afraid of the... the Giants in the land, that kind of thing. Verse 26, well, let me go down. Verse 10, I mean, Numbers 14, if you're taking notes. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites, and the Lord said to Moses, all they've done at this point was grumble. How long will these people treat me with contempt? In verse 26, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked people community grumble against me? I've heard their complaints of the grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In the desert, your bodies will fall. In the desert, every one of you 20 years old or more who has not counted the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land. I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua. As for your children, the ones you said would be taken plunder, I'll bring them into the land to enjoy it, that which you've rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. That's a theological thing. Your kids are going to suffer for your grumbling as well. For 40 years, one for each of the years that you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know that it is a lot, know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Grumbling. This is God takes grumbling seriously because grumbling, if you think about the text, there was something God wanted to give them. There was, they thought it was not going to be good, but God knew it was going to be incredible. But their grumbling prohibited them from getting it. Parents, their grumbling, their kids paid a price for their grumbling as well. When we grumble, when we complain, when we're arguing, God says, don't. It's a hallmark sign that that individual is not on the road of sanctification. One of the first things God does is, now listen, I won't put anyone on a guilt trip because how many people in here grumble? I think we're all there. The issue isn't do I grumble or not. The issue is on the scale of 1 to 10, where will you fall on the scale? If you want to know, don't try to answer that yourself because you're going to be a lot kinder to yourself probably than what you ought to be. Ask someone who loves you very much but who can shoot straight with you on a scale from 1 to 10. 10, they grumble about everything. They win the lottery, they'd be grumbling. 1, everything is perfect. Where am I on the scale? Let them put you. And then here's what you and I need to do. You and I need to work out. Our salvation, it's a command. We don't just sit back and let God change me. It's just the way I am, man. I'm just going to let God change. It's just the way, who I am. I was created to be this way. Yeah, yeah, it is. You were created to be a sinner. You are a sinner. It's right. That's why, we need, that's why he came, to change us. We've got to put that argument aside. Let him work on us as, as we roll up our sleeves and work out our salvation. And here's the first place to start, grumbling. So let me ask you, on the grumbling scale, are you a grumbler? 
Can't be grumbling and holy at the same time. So how do we work this out? Uh, Psalm 103 was, was, was huge. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and do not forget all of his benefits. So here, here's the challenge, the, the gratefulness challenge for this week. Uh, if you dare to take it, here's your mission if you dare to take it. Carve out 10 minutes each day for this week, just this week, and, and pray for those 10 minutes. But now here's the rule. You cannot ask for anything. It has to be 10 minutes. You can't just go three minutes, two minutes, I'm done. No, 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 no. It's got to be 10 minutes. Watch the watch, clock, whatever. But just thank God. Just think. Because you know what? A lot of times we forget his benefits. We just get caught up with some, the, the Israelites were so, it was so, God had this built into their schedule three times a day, no matter what's going on. Sin's coming at them, some deals they're doing in business and kids. And, and three times a day, though, they had to stop and look towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. If they were outside of the land, if they were in it, look towards the temple and be reminded. That's what it's about, my relationship with him. He loves me. He took the initiative. There's redemption in him alone. And they would stop and pray. What do you think they're praying for when they're stopping and they're focusing on the temple? We don't have that built into our schedule, and so we'll go days, weeks, without stopping to count our blessings, to focus on that which he has done for us. So there's our... There's our application in this. And this is the coolest thing. If you would follow this passage, this is the why. If we do that, do this so that, and don't put the period here in the wrong place, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order they may boast on the day of Christ. In other words, the reason why we're sanctified is so the world would know that he's real. People don't want another belief system. They don't want, a flood. They don't want just a talking head telling them what's right or wrong. Does it work? If it doesn't work, don't export it. Transformation, what's going to sell transformation? We're trying to peddle a gospel of transformation. Well, the only way we're going to do that is if we are being transformed. Because if we're not being transformed, we should work on all of our strategies and evangelism and get that down. We should. But you need to know if we got all that going. But, but when they come, we're in here arguing with each other and complaining and bickering. And, and that's just who I am. Are they going to want to stick around? What are they going to say? They're going to say, this doesn't work for you. What's make you think it should work for me? You're just like everybody else in the world. You're just complaining and bickering and angry about other things. God's goal for Israel, God's goal for the church, was that the world may know, as he would sanctify us. So, are you a grumbler? Probably we all are. But will we be as much a one in a week, in two weeks? Well, that's, that's our call in many ways.